Welcome to Identity Talk, a show dedicated to unearthing stories about compelling people, doing compelling things, and making compelling discoveries about who they are. I'm Jana Lopez, your hostess. Each episode of Identity Talk, you'll discover illuminating conversations with guests from all walks of life. My life's mission as a book coach, writing guide, and retreat leader is to guide people like you towards clarity and connection through writing. I blend experience and intuition to take your writing to unimaginable results in your creativity and productivity. I offer private and small group retreats in stunning Santa Fe, New Mexico. I'm the published author of the acclaimed book, Me, My Selfie, and I. If it's time to unearth your own stories, write that book and need clarity, guidance, or support, visit JanaLopez.com. And now, let the unearthing of stories begin on Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. And I'm excited to have yet another fascinating guest, Dr. Gregory Shushan. And so much to begin with how much he has accomplished in the world of exploring near-death experiences and the origins of afterlife from a very unique perspective. He has spent, I'm sure, I don't know how many years. <laughs> it's uh, getting over 20 now, actually. Over 20 years doing this extraordinary research on cross-cultural perspectives, religious perspectives, theological perspectives, academic perspectives, scientific perspectives, on what happens with near-death experiences and the afterlife. So how'd you get interested in this? It's such a <laughs> fascinating topic, but how did you personally get interested in this? Um, well, thanks, Jana, first of all, for um, inviting me on your podcast. It's, uh, it's great. Um, that's a tricky question, actually. Um, I mean, on the one hand, it's like, how does anyone get interested in like, um, I don't know, ancient Egypt or Renaissance art or medieval literature or whatever. Partly, so it's partly is just like um, an academic curiosity thing and just wanting to pursue this interesting idea, you know? Um, but ever since I was a kid, I had, I've had um, interest in strange phenomena, you know, paranormal stuff, whatever. Um, you know, I had I had books about it when I was a kid about um, you know rains of frogs and fishes and um, uh, toads found in a in an ancient stone buried in a cave for a billion years, just like this weird kind of stuff. Right. Um, and then on top of that, I had an aunt who was a a Rosicrucian, and so that was pretty interesting. And she would give me books about um, you know Tibetan lamas and witchcraft and all kinds of stuff and um my mom was interested you know she's kind of hippie generation so she was like had books by Ram Dass and Aldous Huxley and um, mm -hmm. she'd take me chanting at the Krishna temple and stuff like that when I was little so I just always had this kind of um I guess openness and curiosity about um things that weren't being talked about in mainstream reality you know mm -hmm. in, in, in the west and in, in this country you know, we kind of the main religious, I don't know, not just ideology, but kind of um, imagery that we get is Christianity, you know, and, and so right. that's and secondarily Judaism a little bit. Um, but pretty much any other spiritualities are, are sort of hidden from the mainstream unless you kind of, you know, live somewhere like Santa Fe. Um, right. So, yeah, so that um, and, and then I, I had a book, you know, I got Raymond Moody's book, Life After Life. Um, and then later on, I, I ran across this book um, by Carol Zaleski called Otherworld Journeys. And she's a theologian, medieval scholar. 
and she compared uh, contemporary near-death experiences with um, medieval accounts of other world journeys, which are basically um, the same type of phenomena. You know, it's monks and mm -hmm. nuns, and usually who or whoever, um, temporarily dying, going to other worlds, having these strange experiences, and then coming back. So that kind of planted the seed, and then and then later um, I was doing uh, my BA in Egyptian archaeology, and I started paying attention to how in Egyptian afterlife books, there were these similarities also to near-death experience. They're not, um, they're not accounts of people who died and went to other worlds, but they're, you know, books of the dead where people were, they're basically guidebooks to instruct the king or whoever um, how to negotiate the afterlife once they die. Which was a big, I mean, of course, so much in Egyptian cultures known and, and yet not known because of the whole mummification and the building of pyramids and so much of their culture focused on exactly what transporting and getting people and having this honored, revered experience in, in death. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's this um, deeply sort of embedded knowledge or wisdom about the afterlife that the Egyptians had um, going back, you know, not just centuries, but millennia. I mean, this is going way, way back. Right. Yeah. So, um, but because um, early in, in early civilizations, the uses to which writing was put was, was very limited and it was kind of reserved for the elite, for um, accounting, for the priesthood, for the royalty, whatever. Hmm. So there's no um, personal narratives of like, you know, I don't know, whoever um, died and came back to life and this is what he said. So all we have of what they believed is, you know, the texts that are telling us how to, what we're going to find in the afterlife when we die. So yeah, I just started um, noticing that there are similarities in those texts with near-death experiences. Um, so just in a, in a general way, but, but very culturally situated. So for example, um, you leave the body you travel through darkness, you come out into a world of light, uh, you meet a being of light who is the sun god, Ray, mm -hmm. um, and then you have some kind of evaluation of your life, which is you know similar to the life review and near-death experiences. And then there's a, the idea of when people who have NDEs leave their bodies and they see their, their own corpse lying there, mm -hmm. that's kind of like the realization that, you know, wow, I'm dead and yet I'm still conscious and I'm, and I'm going through these other experiences and whatever. And in the Egyptian text, they, um, they encounter the corpse of Osiris, the, the God of the dead. But the text says that the dead person, the deceased spirit is Osiris. And that recognizing that connection that they're Osiris and that they've transcended death is, is literally the thing that enables them to proceed to the next level in the mm. afterlife. So it's not just like descriptive thing, but like the whole meaning of um, near-death experiences is, is, you know, kind of reflected in these ancient texts. So let's just take a step back a little bit to the similarities that you were starting to see in these threads. And there is a discernment between what happens in death versus the near-death experience, right? Because from what I understand, you're looking at the near-death experience as an experience, not necessarily focusing on what occurs in the belief and the religion and the places that people go related to death. Is that also correct or near correct? Well, I'm looking at near-death experience in relation to those beliefs. Okay. Yeah. 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 So whether, I, I guess the real, the succinct way of putting it is the degree to which beliefs um, help to form near-death experiences and the degree to which the beliefs in uh, no, I'm sorry, the degree to which the experiences um, inform the beliefs. So, so the, yeah, the relationship between the two. Have you had a near-death experience or do you, are you friends or no, or close with anybody who has a near-death experience? Have you had anybody like personally related to you or yourself that have had a near-death experience? No, I haven't. Um, but what's interesting is pretty much every time I give a talk either, um, you know, at a conference or a, a public talk or whatever, um, multiple people come up to me and tell me that they've had them. 
Um, or even just in casual conversation, I, if I meet somebody new, they'll say either they had one or they had an aunt or an uncle or a parent. So um, they're much more common, I think, than people think that the official uh, percentage is like between 10 and 15% of people who temporarily die or come close to death um, have them. Uh, but it, it might be more because a lot of people don't want to talk about it because they think they're going to be seen as, as a you know, crazy or a new age weirdo or something. Yeah, I've had a couple of friends. I have a very good friend who had open heart surgery, who definitely died mm -hmm. during the procedure. Um, and she looks at that. And I know you you also sort of uh, talk about that and, and we'll get to that. But she looks at that as like being the biggest gift she ever had in her life because of what it gave her in terms of her own knowing and her experience of herself. And I love how you look at how those near-death experiences um, are about self and identity and not about self and not an identity. They're, they're about being uh, conscious of something of ourselves and outside of ourselves and, and within ourselves, I guess uh, it's a hard way to put it, but you're very good at succinctly describing the inner relationship between those things. Thanks. Um, yeah, there's definitely, uh, that's one of the dimensions. There's all these dimensions of NDEs because you know, everybody just wants to know like, um, you know, oh, somebody died and came back to life. Does that mean there's really an afterlife? But that's just the kind of tip of the iceberg. Um, but yeah, the, one of the main features of NDEs is that the person comes back transformed. It's this kind of really transformational experience. So um, a great example that I always think of is there was this uh, philosopher named A.J. Ayer, and he spent his life basically um, writing about materialist philosophy, that there's um, no God, there's no soul, there's, you know, there, everything is just the material world as we see it. Um, and he had an NDE and he came back and he said, um, first of all, he said, you know, uh oh, I've, uh, I, I encountered a divine being. I'm going to have to, you know, change all of my books and opinions about, on the subject. Um, and then his wife said later, um, ever since he died, he's been such a nicer person. Which I thought was a really interesting way to put it. And that's, um, you know, that's a really cross-cultural thing going all around the world and in, in kind of all eras, the, the, the transformation on the, and the sort of um, positive after effects of the experience. You know, it's interesting as you were speaking, as I, I got the image, there's not probably a lot of, well, there, there's not as prominent as a, a, in a, a field of study, I guess, for lack of a better term, where science and spirituality really are being requested to coalesce in such a unique way because it feels like people with science want evidence-based research on these things. They want to quantify and qualify mm -hmm. a texture of an experience that is purely based in some uh, spiritual knowing, right? Or connection. And so it's an interesting thing. How do you reconcile or experience the way science and spirituality blend in near-death experiences? Um, I think there are some people doing really great research and trying to bridge that gap. Mm -hmm. um, like Bruce Grayson comes to mind. Um, in fact, all the stuff going on at University of Virginia at the um, Division of Perceptual Studies. Um, Kenneth Ring was great in, in, those, in that, those terms. Um, but... The problem, I think, is is with with science, with you know, with a big capital S, is that um, there's so much stigma and so much judgment about these kind of experiences mm -hmm. um, that as soon as scientists start looking at them, um, they're kind of seen as fringy or weird or no longer proper scientists. Um, a good example, not in the field of NDEs, but um, just in the field of you know paranormal stuff in general, you know I put paranormal in quotes because it's, it's not really a great term, but um, <laughs> I, I know what you meant. <laughs> anything kind of uh, spiritual or psychic or telepathic. Rupert Sheldrake, for example, you know he's this um, Cambridge biologist who is very 
you know, wrote mainstream books on, on biology. And then he started doing studies on things like um, dogs who know when their owners are coming home, when their owners are miles and miles away and like putting training videos on these dogs to see at what point they start um, getting excited knowing that their owners are coming home. And then he had this, you know, idea about morphic resonance, which is about um, how uh, different consciousnesses can um, kind of evolve and communicate over vast spaces and time. Um, and he was basically, you know, sort of blackballed from the academic community and, and um, you know, his, his TED talk was banned. Um, and, and, you know, I was at Oxford for a while and, and there, would, there was a skeptics group. And once I asked, you know, what about people like um, Rupert Sheldrake or Kenneth Ring or any of these people who, uh, Peter Fennick is another big one in the UK, who's a, a neuropsychiatrist who studied NDEs. Um, you know, what happens to their scientific credibility just because they're starting to see something beyond what you're seeing. And they basically said, well, they lost their scientific credibility. <laughs> so it's a real problem, you know. Which is ironic and sort of hypocritical to some degree. I mean, well, it's, it's interesting. It's anti-science even. Yeah. Um, I and, saw, and, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say that, you know, the thing that reminds me of right now is all the research that's coming out about the use of psychedelics for therapeutic purposes. Um, a lot of the doctors who were on the front end of what happens to perception and consciousness and altered states of reality by use of uh, psilocybin or LSD mm. or something, when they're talking about what happens to the brain and the scientific research, trying to quantify these very spiritual relationships that people have with deeper, deeper realms. And I think yeah. with death, um, it's one of those things. Everybody has a thought, a fear, an opinion, a construct, a theological, a psychological, an emotional, maybe a, re a religious sort of relationship to death. It's such an individualized, personalized thing that to look at how cultures have responded to near-death near experiences. I was looking at some of the images that you had in that article that you sent me earlier of all the cultures that have had these depictions and images related to death and the near-death experience specifically and how they experience that. Mm -hmm. I, I would think that it would be completely inspiring in some ways to see how uniquely uh, perceived some of the cultures have experienced near death mm -hmm. moments. Would yeah. that be inspiring to you? Because it feels like that when you, when I read some of what you had and some of the images, I would think that would be like, just kind of exciting. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a really good point because the, the diversity of these experiences and beliefs is just as interesting and exciting as you say, as the fact that, they occur across all these cultures. So, right. um, and I think that's also a, a good, um, you know, people who are born, who are raised in strict monotheistic kinds of traditions, evangelical Christians or Catholics or whatever. Um, and they have this idea of, you know, what the afterlife is going to be like, and it's based on judgment and um, punishment of sin and reward for good behavior or resurrection or whatever. Um, to, to then see that people who have been clinically dead around the world are actually not reporting those things. Mm -hmm. um, and in addition to that, they're not even reporting the same things everywhere. <laughs> people are having not just um, you know, different beliefs, but literally different types of NDEs in different parts of the world. So you know, a, a Christian will see Jesus and a Muslim will see Muhammad and an atheist will just see a, a being of light or whatever. Um, and it just does not happen otherwise. You know, you don't have somebody who was born in medieval China um, saying that they saw Jesus or, or somebody who was, you know, I don't know, born in um, Pakistan seeing a Zuni Kachina. You know, it's just these kinds, so, so these cultural embeddedness um, is, is really part of uh, what, what motivates me to keep uh, going with this kind of research. I mean, I think the fact that you live in Santa Fe, as do I, there's so much interesting indigenous 
energy and spirit here, uh, just connected to the land. I feel it. And it's just such a magical place. So as you did research, were there cultures like Native American cultures or like you said, ancient Chinese cultures or Egyptian cultures? Was there any description or sense of these near-death experiences that you particularly resonated with that, or that surprised you? Um, hmm. A couple that I, that I, um, I, I sort of doubted their authenticity. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll just backtrack a little bit with, with the Native American, this needs a little context. Um, there's lots and lots of Native American accounts going back to like 16th century. Um, the, the first was like from 1589, there was a, a British explorer, Thomas Harriet, who um, went to Virginia and he was told by these Algonquin people there that you know, they, they asked him, um, he asked uh, how they knew about their afterlife um, when they described what their afterlife beliefs were. And they said, well, this particular person um, died and went to the other world and came back and described what he had seen. And there were actually two people, um, two accounts they had. One had a positive experience and one had a negative one. So that was how they were able to explain um, what the Western explorers saw as a very Christian idea that um, there was a hellish realm and a, and a positive realm. Mm -hmm. um, but in my research on, on Native American NDEs, um, I found something like 70 references to them, either, either accounts or missionaries or explorers or anthropologists saying, you know, they know about the afterlife because of, of these reasons. Um, most of them were positive and uh, a lot of them resulted in like new religious movements, like the ghost dance religion. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, at Taos, not far from us, um, Pope, the uh, religious leader there, he had a near-death experience. And that's partly what inspired the Pueblo rebellion because he was told during his NDE, um, you know, in, basically inspired and encouraged to fight against the, the Spanish and, and get them out of Taos. Mm -hmm. So, um, so there's this real, with Native Americans in particular, but also in, in a lot of um, Pacific indigenous societies, there's this real sort of politically empowering um, revital, cultural revitalization component, component to NDEs, where they're told in the other world to come back and um, either culturally integrate with the invaders or fight against them. But whatever it is, it's like um, to save the culture and to save our people kind of thing. It's kind of sad when you said that. I don't know why. I mean, it feels like empowering and everything, but it's also think about how vulnerable some of these people were have or had they've been in history and in time where they've been on these places or these the precipice of having to decide about what they're going to do to save their own people. And yeah, it is really sad. And and just the fact that in some cases they're told to cooperate by, you know, by their ancestors or right. deity spirit, whatever. And in some cases they're told to basically uh, fight back. It shows that, you know, I don't know whether the spirits are giving um, in, information that's not always the most helpful <laughs> or that, you know, it could be that they already knew about NDEs and they, and this political religious leader um, wanted to start a movement that they thought was the right thing to do. So they kind of grounded it in an NDE that maybe they didn't really have. Right. Um, it's, right. it's kind of impossible to tell in a lot of these cases. Right. Um, but th there was one case where um, a guy went to the other world and he, uh, this is a Native American um, NDE again, I can't remember which um, culture it was, which tribe, but um, he said that, uh, you know, he had met Satan and that he was told he had to come back and, and um, basically start this kind of satanic cult to fight against the Europeans. So, um, uh, but there are so many questionable things surrounding it. And, and it seems like he'd been in trouble with the law before and, and he was kind of using it as a, um, a money-making scheme. So, um, so I don't think that, you know, that that was a, a, an example of somebody being told in the other world that they have to come back and and do something wrong or bad. You know? Well, and it's interesting because I think hope and belief are the most marketable commodity we have. And if you look yeah. at where that shows up even today, 
hmm. in, in evangelical settings and religions and cults and all these other things where people are told give up everything and I will lead the way and it's for some false notion of what does or doesn't ha happen later yeah uh, so I think the near-death experience becomes in a vulnerable position because there's probably so much wisdom and cultural currency we can gain from such experiences. And at the same time, how cautious, I guess, one must be in evaluation of the meaning of these and who's delivering the meaning. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and from the Native American perspective, what was interesting is um, the ghost dance, the um, Indian Shaker Church, the Dreamer religion, it was called. All these movements were, were all grounded in NDEs and they did succeed in kind of revitalizing the culture for a long time. But what was interesting about them is they, the, one of the main purposes was to democratize the afterlife basically and to um, allow that afterlife state, the NDE state to be accessible to anybody in the tribe, not just the person who died. So um, for example, on the ghost dance, they would, you know, dance and chant for hours and hours on end until they literally collapsed unconscious. Right. With the idea in their heads that when that happened, that they would go to the other world and have, you know, access the NDE type reality. So it was kind of a, a shamanistic thing where like um, shamans are sort of, anybody can be a shaman. And, right. And in that process, they're replicating the near-death experience in a way. And I think that's um, a really interesting religious practice that that seems to have not resonated with you know most people in in western religions um it does it does crop up in certain african and pacific cultures and i also think in ancient greece i think like the ancient mystery cults were possibly mm -hmm. a um you know a, a way of reenacting or or inspiring a an, an artificial nde um so which i think is interesting because there's a lot of it's a, it's an effort to tap into the into the wisdom as well as the experience that NDEs are giving. Right. And I think that's one of the things that makes your field of study in your specific research interesting. And so just bringing it down to earth in this moment, what do you believe about life and death? What, what has all this research and uh, engagement with worlds religions, cultures, thoughts, practices, how has it shaped your beliefs? Um, I would say uh, as an academic, I kind of prefer to um, not, neither believe nor disbelieve. And uh, it's not so much sitting on the fence, it's just kind of being comfortable with unknowing, you know, the cloud of unknowing and just kind of being okay with not having to know if these experiences are really of an afterlife or not. Um, plus, I sort of feel like um, because of the way I was was brought up, I guess, without any particular religion or any indoctrination, um, I don't really even have a personal concept of belief. I feel like I either know something or I don't know it. Um, so as far as I would go, as I would say, I, I believe that um, there is that NDEs give us a irrational, reasonable, um, I don't know, a, a rational reason to believe in an afterlife. I think that, that it's a perfectly valid type of belief for somebody to have based on the fact that all these people have been, you know, having these experiences throughout history and as well as all the, you know, contemporary scientific research since the seventies that's been going on about NDEs. So, but I, at the same time, I also think um, and this is something I, I kind of explore in, in my new book a lot in the next world, that if I take that next step and kind of, um, you know, do a suspension of disbelief or suspension of suspension of my agnosticism and pretend that I believe thoroughly, then I start thinking, okay, if I do believe in an afterlife and that NDEs are, are genuine experiences of surviving the death of our bodies, given all this cross-cultural differences and given all the cross-cultural similarities, um, what kind of afterlife could even possibly be like? Because it's obviously not the one that's being preached by most of the world's religions. 
Um, so what I've kind of concluded is that it's what makes most sense, sense to me anyway, is that it's mostly like a lucid dream that um, there, well, first of all, the near-death experience, I'm not saying that it's just created by our minds or that it's not a real experience. I'm saying that um, the sort of background main elements like uh, leaving the body, darkness, coming out into light, supernatural beings or ancestors, that's all possibly objective, um, but it's how you experience and the way you perceive it is gonna be based on your expectations and on your culture and your imagination and the symbolism that you grew up with and everything else. So to just expand from that and kind of speculate, extrapolate, once you pass the NDE stage, once you're at the point of no return, we are not gonna come back to your body, um, it's probably a similar kind of reality that you'd be experiencing, that there's maybe objective things going on in the other world, but everyone's going to see them slightly differently and experience them slightly differently. So it's like a, a co-created lucid dream with, with the souls of other people, maybe. Mm. So that's the it's only kind way. I, I mean, it's hard to, to even, I, know, I hear what you're saying and I get what yeah. you're saying, but it's hard to conceptually internalize the extent of what that means. It's like asking, what is a, what is a galaxy? You know, it's yeah, like, I know. It, but it's interesting because it does ground it into something. And when you were saying that, it reminds me of the movie Contact. Uh-huh, right. When Jodie yeah. Foster goes and sees her father in this realm, it feels like time's unlimited, infinite in time. And then she comes back. Yeah. And it was only a few seconds. Right. Yeah. And she tries to explain it. And she's like, no, I really saw this. And, you know, they're like, you were only gone 20, you know, couple seconds. So, yeah. Yeah. There's even an NDE like that. I, I can't remember the details, but a guy uh, came back to life and he was just distraught because he said, I was just in this other life and I had a wife and a kid and I'd been there like, you know, 40 years or something. Um, and suddenly he's, he's yanked out of that life and back into, into his old one on this earth. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we need to take seriously the similarities and we also need to take seriously the differences. Mm -hmm. And, and that's one of the main problems with, with near-death studies is that, that they don't do that. So, um, so we need to then, you know, make, make that next step of then how do we explain it? Because both people who believe in an afterlife and scientists who are studying these kind of experiences or who dismiss them, um, they have a vested interest in, in them being all the same, basically. So um, if you have a, an evangelical Christian, and I don't want to pick on evangelicals too much. So if you have a, a, a whatever um, near-death experiencer who um, met Jesus and saw heaven and hell and was told very Christian ideas, they're going to come back and they will often disbelieve the NDE of a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim because that's not what they experienced. So they're judging everybody else's experience by their own um, personal experience. So, mm -hmm. so to them, that being of light has to be Jesus. And for all we know, they, it, I don't want to say it manifested as Jesus, but the person having the NDE projected Jesus symbolism onto the being of light. And that's how they objectively experienced it. So for all intents and purposes, it really was Jesus. But as far as the being of light is concerned, I don't know if, if it identifies as Jesus or not. Yeah. <laughs> and it sounds like from what you're saying, and, and, and please paraphrase and correct me, but the passion of your work really dwells in the heart of embracing the validity of similarity and difference in how we understand life after death. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because, um, you know, when, when near death studies, well, I wouldn't even want to say when it's first happened, it's still going on. Basically there, there's a new study from Harvard and there's a study about, um, uh, the, uh, burst of brain activity in the last few seconds of, of death. Um, and they, they found this in rats as well as in a, in a person, who is dying that this, this just happened. When somebody is dying, there's a burst of brain activity. So the scientists then speculate from that, um, oh, well, that must be what a life review is. There's the biological, physiological basis for a life review. Um, 
these scientists are basing their conception of near-death experiences on a Western stereotype because life review is actually one of the least common elements of a near-death experience across cultures. And even in Western um, NDEs, life reviews aren't all that common. Um, they mostly happen when people are not, not when people have temporarily died and came back, but when like they're afraid that they're gonna die if they think they're gonna drown or if they fell off a cliff or something, but weren't physically in danger. So the importance of that is that um, they're, they're constructing these reductionist, materialist, scientific theories about near-death experiences based on something that is not clearly, obviously not a physiological occurrence, because if it were, it would be happening in all NDEs around the world in different cultures. So yeah, so yeah they, have, they have just as, as you know, people who believe want the afterlife to be the same for everyone, or it doesn't make sense to them, uh, materialist science, scientists want um, all NDEs to be the same across cultures. Otherwise, they can't find a way to say that it's entirely generated by the dying brain. How do you have conversations with other academics who have spent time and have investment in uh, exploring whether it's a scientific or a spiritual or cultural place from which this does get examined? And they do come from that place. It reminds me of the romanticized notion of the life review being the way that we experience what we know death will be like mm -hmm. defending your life with Albert Brooks and Meryl Streep. Uh -huh. Perfect example. Did you see that movie? Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, how they're doing the life review. I mean, right. I think we've been conditioned Hollywood dramatizations of what happens in near death or afterlife that, um, we develop these perspectives of this uniformity, like you said, and, and what yeah. you're finding is that it's just absolutely not uniform at yeah. all, there but there another, are similarities. Yeah. Yeah. There was another movie uh, with Robin Williams, what dreams may come, yes. which was based on a Richard Matheson novel um, that kind of comes closer to, to the model I'm talking about. Um, but at the same time, if I remember correctly, there is still this kind of, um, I don't know, manipulation of the process from some external being or right. system or bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think it's more likely that it's just a, um, a sort of natural evolutionary transition from the state of our consciousness, consciousness being in a body on this earth to it being in some other state that, mm -hmm. that we don't totally know about. So, yeah. Yeah. How do mediums and mediumships who supposedly interact and converse with people who have passed on, how do people who believe they can communicate with those in the afterlife, where do they fit into the equation of the conversation in terms of understanding near-death experiences? Hmm. Um. That's a good question. I, 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 there's a chapter on this in my new book, In the Next World, as well. Um, I kind of used descriptions of the afterlife in NDEs as, as like the baseline to compare descriptions from other kinds of afterlife phenomena, basically, because mm -hmm. I think it's probably the best evidence um, and it's the most similar across cultures. Um, so I, I wanted to look at, um, yeah, what alleged spirits in the afterlife were, were conveying through mediums. Mm -hmm. uh, what they say the afterlife is like and what kind of how they describe it. Um, but I also wanted to limit it to the mediums who are said to have had the most evidence for their mediumship being valid. So, so who got the most um, hits in, uh, you know, different experiments. So for example, that they knew um, things about the sitter that they, they themselves didn't know about you know, family history that their grandfather married another woman before their own grandmother, you know, whatever it is, these um, details that they had no way of knowing, but then were later confirmed. Um, mm -hmm. So, so yeah, the most, you know, supposedly talented mediums. And so I looked at the kinds of um, descriptions that they were transmitting from, from the afterlife, supposedly. And it's interesting because there were a lot of similarities with NDEs um, just on a very basic general level, but they actually read more like um, 
afterlife texts beliefs from ancient India or China or whatever, because they're super systematized. There's um, bureaucracies, there's levels to the afterlife. You know, um, it's all hierarchical. Um, there are these kind of classes of beings, um, you know, panels of judges, helpers, um, people who will, you know, kind of lead you through the other world and make sure you find gainful employment, basically. It's mm -hmm. kind of like a, a mirror image of um, what the people at that time thought an ideal earth should be, really. So it's, they're projecting, and, and since a lot of this came from Edwardian and Victorian England, um, it's very much a kind of mirror image idealization of Victor Victorian and Edwardian England. And in fact, sometimes they even said, um, you know, there are seven levels to Summerland, they called it. Um, and each one is a better version of England, <laughs> which is, you know, that's to me harder to conceptualize than, than the kind of lucid dream type afterlife. That felt like a timeshare when you said that. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. And then to make I it even more- come to sunny, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To make it even more problematic was, um, you know, the kind of, less appealing or less acceptable cultural social overlays also appeared in some of these afterlife beliefs. So for example, um, that black people are, are not, um, well, racists self-segregate because black people, it said, wouldn't be happy in a white man's atmosphere, you know, things like that. And then yeah. the higher up you go to these seven levels of England, the whiter your skin becomes. You oh, know? God. Really, that is very problematic indeed. Yeah, yeah. And stuff about eugenics and just all kinds of, you know, things that were built in at the time. Some of it, you know, to be, to be fair, to be culturally relativistic, they were um, well-intended. You know, they, they, it was kind of white man's burden kind of thing. Yeah. So they would, they would say, you know, um, servants are still servants because they they don't have the spiritual capacity to desire emancipation but after being in the afterlife for a certain number of times then then they will reach that state. so it's still helping you know these these less fortunate people so um anyway I, I had to kind of look at those descriptions in similar terms as you know the ancient egyptian or, or medieval or whatever afterlife beliefs in that there's maybe some influence from ndes or some germ of actual experience in them, but so clouded with um, the cultural narrative superimposed on top of it that it's really kind of impossible to, to disentangle it. Going sideways from that, but still related, why do you think we want to believe in an afterlife? And why do you think we, want, we don't want to believe in an afterlife? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, and in fact, it's funny because one of the theories of, of why we believe in an afterlife from psychology and anthropology is like wish fulfillment, mm -hmm. that the, the whole thing is just because we want to, um, which of course ignores the existence of near-death experiences going mm -hmm. back to early history. But I think we want to partly because um, this life is so full of disappointments mm -hmm. and um, uh, and not just disappointments, but, you know, horribleness, horror. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And, and it's, I know that in our current reality, um, we tend to feel like the world has never been worse than it currently mm. is um, mm -hmm. with climate change and political upheaval and divisions. Um, mm -hmm. But really, if you look back throughout history, um, I mean, look at ancient Rome or... Um, what was going on in World War II. I mean, it's just, this is just the human condition, you know, it, it might be worse now than it's been in our lifetimes mm -hmm. or in the past since World War II, mm -hmm. but, you know. Um, so it's just this kind of continuum of, um, you know, we're, we're, we're stuck on this planet and there's no justice that's going to happen on this planet while we're here um, mm -hmm. in any grand scale. You know, it's not like... Um, the people who are responsible for the situations that we're in on this planet are going to have uh, necessarily, they're going to have a kind of moral 
retribution against their actions. So I think partly it's just that. It's like we want to believe that, well, they'll they'll get theirs <laughs> in the next life. And conversely, you know, I've been a good person. I didn't deserve a lot of the things that's ha- happened to me. So um, I'll get the reward in the next life. Right. And then so, why don't we want to believe? And and you know, it's interesting you said that. One of the things I read, and I'm just gonna add a thought and we'll go on to why people you believe don't want to believe is that we want to know that we've mattered, we've had purpose, we've left something, the idea of we existed at all. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And and people even sort of see their earthly works as living on in a way. Right. Um, I do. I I feel like, you know, um, writing these books isn't an entirely vanity project you know um i like the idea that they're going to be read and that people are going to keep reading them Mm -hmm. after i'm dead and that they'll make some kind of impact if not on you know people's personal lives but in the discussion about these kinds of things um but yeah as far as why people don't want to believe in an afterlife um i think there's a few reasons one of them is um uh career oriented <laughs> it can be explained by people's careers and that, so if you're a materialist scientist um you pretty much have to have that philosophical commitment um and even outside of science you know i come from my my when i when i went from archaeology to do my phd I, I defected to religious studies which is um not theology just to make that distinction it's um, it's more of like the anthropological study comparative religion they used to call it um, of, of outsiders studying religions, essentially. Um, but within that world, there is a real hostility towards the kind of work that I'm doing. Um, because the idea that there's a experience like a near-death experience that can be responsible for um, influencing religions around the world or even creating people's afterlife beliefs, that's a step a little bit too close to something supernatural or divine or theological so um so which would mess with their identity because if they built their they hung their mantle on who they are based on this belief from my cold dead hands they're not going to want to give it up absolutely yeah so so it's not enough to say you know to be open-minded about the reality of other cultures spiritual beliefs um they're actually judging and denying that those beliefs have any kind of spiritual reality and going to such an extreme extent that, you know, I never said in any of my work that near-death experiences are evidence of an afterlife. All I've said is they're experiences that obviously happen around the world and obviously influence people's beliefs. But even that was enough to like be seen as, you know, some kind of crypto theologian, they call it. So, so there's a vested interest, um, in a lot of fields, in the humanities as well as in the sciences. If you, because if you were a scientist who hung your hat on this idea that it, it it's can't scientifically happen, and then you're faced with the reality that it could be a possibility, then what unknown, infinite, dark territory would you have to traverse in in that unknowing? That yeah. that would be scary, I would imagine, for a lot of people. Just like the overwhelm of uncertainty would be terrifying. Yeah, I think so. Um, Because, you know, arch skeptics are just as committed to their beliefs as, you know, the most fundamentalist uh, religious believer. So, and it's interesting, you know, I saw um, Sean Carroll in town the other night giving a talk. He's a quantum physicist who's brilliant quantum physicist. And he's a proponent of the many worlds theory of quantum physics, which says that um, mm-hmm. you know there are infinite worlds and versions of ourselves and all this other stuff. Um, but when somebody asked him about consciousness and the role of consciousness in quantum physics, or the role of um, you know what the implications of quantum physics are for consciousness and an afterlife, um, he got. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to say hostile. It's too extreme, but dismissive. He certainly got dismissive. Um, he was um, obviously didn't want to engage in that conversation and kind of shut the questions down pretty quickly. And I'm thinking, you know, to my way of thinking, 
NDEs give more evidence of an afterlife than we have evidence for many worlds theory and quantum physics. So, and I know he, he understands the equations and I don't, you know, I'm not a quantum physicist. So, so he has reason to believe that this completely bonkers, screwy, insane model of reality is true, but he cannot but yet... <laughs> go to the next stage of like, well, maybe our consciousness exists after our bodies die. Yeah, it's <laughs> interesting. It's that, yeah. I mean, that's, I would think from your point of view, you're going open-minded. You're hoping you got like a bro in the house. <laughs> like, yeah. We can think about things, multiplicities of realities and ideas and conceptualizations that might extend beyond. I think it's disheartening when I meet people that I imagine would be open-minded to some degree because of their work. And then when you try to engage with them in something that would require them to be open-minded, they're not. I'm, and I'm not right. saying he is or wasn't. Generally speaking, though, I'm always a little disheartened. I'm like, well, isn't this what you teach and preach? And where is it now? Yeah, well, he, he's not open-minded about the afterlife. I, I um, There's an article that he wrote where he's discussing with a friend of his, who is also a scientist, I can't remember his name, um, talking about the afterlife. And the friend was said he's agnostic about the afterlife. And Sean Carroll thinks this is ridiculous. He said, yeah, we don't know if the moon is made of green cheese technically, but you know we understand that it's not. And he compared that to an afterlife, and he said something like, um, "You know, all we have for belief, uh, evidence of an afterlife, is stories from around the world." And I'm almost quoting this. He said almost exactly, and a few accounts of near-death experiences from a few unreliable witnesses, huh. um, which is, you know sure he probably didn't do the research he hasn't done the research he, he doesn't know um very much about ndes so he's dismissed them in those kind of terms but um that is i'm not saying he's an ignorant person but that is displaying ignorance about the topic of ndes and i've run across this a lot um especially in relation to ndes across cultures right. um so richard gottlieb in in the new york review once wrote something like um there, there is no evidence for NDEs across cultures. So uh, if, if it were a genuine experience of an afterlife, we'd expect to find them. And I'm thinking, how much time did you spend looking? Like, did you Google it? <laughs> because there is <laughs> massive evidence for NDEs um, across cultures. Um, and then this idea of the afterlife being the same for everybody. Um, right. Richard Harris and Keith Augustine um, they've both written things like um, near-death experiences can't be true because if they were, we'd expect them, we'd expect the afterlife to be the same for everybody. We certainly wouldn't expect, uh, Richard Harris wrote, we certainly would expect differences between NDEs in North and South India, which again shows ignorance of the cultural differences and dynamics between North and South India. Um, why wouldn't we expect differences between them? But it also shows um, this strange marriage to this idea that the afterlife has to be the same for everybody, no matter what culture or background they come from, when this life isn't the same for everybody. Yeah. So, so there's this you know, lack of, um, and I think maybe, I don't know if it's the education system or what, but there's this gulf between humanities and science people and they think, I guess they think the humanities aren't important and they don't need to look into it. So they're such, sort of dismissive, but then they end up, um, I would say embarrassing themselves, but I don't think they care. They would probably double down anyway, but they end up showing um, their own ignorance of the subject by making these blanket pronouncements, which are just flat out wrong. It's wonderful that you're doing the, the, the work and the research and the inquiry is the word I came, you know, the inquiry into what meaning can be made from the differences and similarities. Thanks, yeah, I mean, I don't think um, they, people like that are necessarily gonna listen um, and, and read my work and engage with it and think, well, maybe we should change our research model. Maybe we should, you know, I don't mind if they wanna stick to their theory, but just um, justify it. What if you could wave the magic wand, what would you want your work to do or be? And for whom? Um, I would really like for, for those um, kinds of skeptical scholars 
whether they're philosophers or NDE researchers or whatever, um, to take it on board that, you know, especially like the, the life review and the rats I was talking about, the burst of brain activity, to just realize like um, they're trying to construct a, a model of a near-death experience based on human physiology when it's not possible on, on, for that case. So, so I would like the, the cultural um, and cross-cultural diversity to be acknowledged in NDE studies so they maybe can expand their horizons a little bit and stop mm -hmm. reducing it to stereotypes, which is mm -hmm. the only thing they're doing. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then on a, on a, as far as non-research, non-science goes, um, um, for regular readers, I just would like people to, for one thing, if they're afraid of death or if they're locked into some kind of, um, you know, fearful, uh, strictures that they've learned from their own religion about heaven and hell or judgment about other people's religions mm -hmm. just to kind of open up to the diversity that even if they choose to believe in an afterlife which is a totally valid thing to, to choose to do given the evidence um, that they're a little bit um, more open-minded about what that's going to be and just realizing that nobody has a monopoly on the afterlife and that this kind of ties in I think with uh, you know the ideas about toxic theology and that you know certain types of religious beliefs and indoctrination are actually can pretty damaging to people right and so maybe my work can can kind of help people um, get over that a little bit well this has been super interesting and i appreciate your time dr gregory shushan and the recent book is The Next World, Extraordinary Experiences of the Afterlife. And I know that came out very recently. You were doing a reading here in Santa Fe, and I discovered you by learning about that reading the day after the reading happened. Oh, no. <laughs> so had I known, you yeah. know, I definitely would have come to that reading. But um, your, your work in this is fascinating. What I, what I love about it is that it and I'm still new. I haven't yet read the book. I'm going to, and, and we're going to have another conversation, I'm sure. But is that you, you look at it with care and objectivity, but also with that sincere passion for that inquiry into why and how and the bridges and the ways individuality, spirituality, cultural reality, um, science, you know, how these things kind of converge to, to create this very dynamic labyrinth of possibility. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for, um, for recognizing that and appreciating it. Cause that's really what I try to do. Um, because you can't understand any experience just through one particular discipline or one approach. So you right. kind of, you know, integrate all these other things. And, and with this particular experience uh, near-death experiences the cultural stuff just got left by the wayside in in the stampede to try to you know say is it true or isn't it so yeah and i loved i mean even just the images that you had in that one article that you sent to me just even that alone opened up my mind the image from william blake you know where you oh, were right. looking at dante's divine you know where that was like the whole image of philosophical spiritual human humanistic inquiry right like so much of that it doesn't exist to the degree that it that it once did so that always feels like a drink of water to me in an in an oasis of <laughs> a vast saharan desert yeah thanks yeah because i think that's you know that's one of the key takeaways is that um you know ndes have had a f much more profound impact on cultures around the world than i think anybody realizes and it's kind of been buried. I mean, we can talk about it the next time, maybe. But you know, why aren't there any NDEs in Christianity, um, in in the New Testament, for example, or in the Old Testament, when their entire religion is based on a man who died and came back to life? So, um, anyway, <laughs> that's to ponder. That's true. That is true. Well, I'm looking forward to a part two of this conversation and. Where can people find you and your books and learn more? I would highly encourage people to think, dig a little deeper, as they say. Thanks. Yeah. Um, 
you can find me on my website, which is just gregoryshushan.com. Uh, my books are on Amazon, um, The Next World. If you just type in Shushan, The Next World, you'll find it. And then I'm also on uh, Patreon, um, which is a crowdfunding website, because um, may, people may not be surprised that given the subject of research, I don't have a full-time academic post. <laughs> so I kind of, I do this as, as partly a labor of love. So um, that's a place where people can get, if they want to get a copy of The Next World, in fact, um, you know, there are different levels of support starting at like a dollar a month. So, um, and, and yeah, different benefits that go up the different tiers. Very nice. Well, thank you so much for a great conversation and I will look forward to continuing it. Yeah, thank you, Jenna. It's been great. Thanks for listening to Identity Talk with Jenna Lopez. If now's the time to unearth your story or you just have to write that book, don't let fear or overwhelm stop you. Reach out. I'm here to help you achieve your creative writing dreams. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on this show, share it with someone you think is in need. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. Hey, reach out. Find me at janalopez.com. Thank you.